morning and welcome to Her Turn, a program of news and information by and about women. I'm Franny Lyons. And I'm Sadie Minobi. On today's program, the Republican health care overhaul will be disastrous for American women. Democracy Now! speaks to Marissa Alexander, initially sentenced to 20 years in Florida for firing a gunshot at her abusive husband and freed earlier this year. Saudi Arabia somehow ends up on the United Nations Women's Rights Panel. Yemeni women and girls are paying the heaviest price as famine looms in the war-torn Arab state. And a look at sustainable menstrual products. So stay tuned for all this and more on the Sunday, May 5, 2017 edition of Her Turn. As many listeners may be aware, the United States House of Representatives passed the American Health Care Act on May 4th. The act repeals President Obama's Affordable Care Act, or ACA. Under the new act, many people living with pre-existing conditions, such as diabetes or cancer, may be denied health insurance. Rape and domestic abuse are included in the bill's list of pre-existing conditions. Before the ACA was passed in 2010, insurance companies sometimes denied coverage to victims of rape or domestic violence, even if they were otherwise in good health. A 1994 survey showed that eight of the top 16 insurance companies considered domestic violence when determining whether to cover someone. This practice was prohibited under the ACA. It also prevented employers from denying health care to their employees with pre-existing conditions. The ACA also prohibited insurers from charging women higher premiums simply for being women. The American Health Care Act will allow states to opt out of the ACA's protections for women and people with pre-existing conditions. Many advocates point out that even though the new bill prohibits companies from charging higher rates based on gender, many pre-existing conditions disproportionately affect women. This includes postpartum depression, pregnancy, and C-sections. The American Health Care Act, which passed the House with a narrow margin, awaits final determination in the Senate. Wisconsin's Unborn Child Protection Act has been finally deemed unconstitutional by a federal judge in Madison. This 1998 law, written with the intent of protecting fetuses at all stages of pregnancy, labeled pregnant women suspected of current or past drug use, including recreational marijuana, as child abusers. As a result, women could then be held in custody and forced into medical treatment against their will, or face jail time. The statute also assigned lawyers to represent the rights of the fetus, leaving the pregnant mother to fight for her rights as a person on her own. Because of these mandates, women with any history of drug use were much less likely to seek prenatal care for fear of being incarcerated and losing all rights to their future child. The strikedown of this law is a victory for women's health in Wisconsin, protecting them from being labeled as criminals when seeking prenatal care. Women are now free to seek health care for their pregnancies as well as treatment for any substance abuse issues without fear of losing their constitutional rights or children. The latest in a slew of ignorant and misinformed statements about abortions comes from Alaska's Republican state representative, David Eastman. He claims women get pregnant on purpose with the ulterior motive of going on vacation while they have an abortion. He equates Medicaid providing funds for women to travel to Seattle or Anchorage for abortions to women deliberately conceiving just for a chance to visit a different city. 
Eastman's commentary was brought up during an Alaska House discussion on raising awareness about child abuse and sexual assault. He claims that abortions are, quote, the ultimate form of child abuse, end quote. No stranger to mortifying insensitivity, Eastman has also been the sole voice of protest against recognizing the contributions of African-American soldiers during World War II, when troops were still segregated. Texan Republican State Senator Jane Nelson introduced a packet of legislation earlier this year with the intention of protecting children from rapists and labor unions. On the surface, the bills look like the state giving the local government's right to expand neighborhood sex offender boundaries, as well as termination of parental rights to ensure children are not left alone with a parent convicted of rape. While publicly, Nelson states that this packet will provide stronger protections for victims of domestic assault, the proposal still troubles Democrats. That is because Nelson's offered legislation made sure no kid joins a labor union without the consent of their parents. This was inspired by an anecdotal story Nelson heard about a parent that was enraged by their teen's first summer job requiring membership to the company's union. Opponents of the bills believe that this is a ruse for Republicans to say that minors can have the freedom to work in Texas, but not the freedom to speak up together, join a union, or negotiate for the best working conditions. Marissa Alexander, the African-American mother of three who was sentenced to 20 years in prison for firing what she maintains was a warning shot at her abusive husband in 2010, was freed from house arrest earlier this year after being jailed for three years and serving two years of court-ordered home confinement. Alexander had attempted to use Florida's stand-your-ground law in her defense. The law was made famous when white vigilante George Zimmerman successfully used it as his defense after he shot and killed unarmed African-American teenager Trayvon Martin. But in March 2012, the jury rejected Alexander's use of stand-your-ground and convicted her after only 12 minutes of deliberation. He was sentenced to 20 years behind bars under a Florida law known as 1020 Life that carries a mandatory minimum for certain gun crimes, regardless of the circumstance. Alexander won an appeal for a new trial and later accepted a plea deal that capped her sentence to three years of time served. In a 2013 interview with Democracy Now!, civil rights advocate and attorney Michelle Alexander, author of the best-selling book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness, talk about what role mandatory minimum sentencing played in Marissa Alexander's case. She received a 20-year sentence because of harsh mandatory minimum sentences, sentences that exist in Florida and in states nationwide. Um, mandatory minimum sentences give no discretion to judges um, about the amount of time um, that the person should receive once a guilty verdict is rendered. Um, harsh mandatory minimum sentences for drug offenses were passed by Congress uh, in the 1980s 
as part of the war on drugs and the Get Tough movement, um, sentences that um, have helped to fuel our nation's prison boom and have also greatly aggravated racial disparities, particularly in the application of mandatory minimum sentences for crack, cocaine. On Thursday, Amy Goodman and Nermeen Sheikh of Democracy Now! interviewed Marissa Alexander about her case and what has happened since her conviction. And Marissa, if you can go back to 2010 and describe to us what happened, and then with the killing of Trayvon Martin by George Zimmerman, the vigilante, who was acquitted, unlike you, how that changed your case. For me, that particular day, it was a reaction to an action. It was a matter of fight or flight. You know, I felt like I did the best I could. I maintained that. I still don't believe what I did was wrong. The kids were not present. I would have never done that. That was not an issue. And I believe that came out in my first trial. As far as it played forward with George Zimmerman, that was around the same time, because by this time, his case was going along, but mine hadn't made it to the media. Originally, he was given immunity at the crime scene, but then later on was charged. I was charged first and then had to have a hearing. So there's the difference between he and I, our cases. So that was the difference. And then, essentially, it's in the jury instructions, regardless. So the difference in our cases is the fact that you had a child that was killed and was not present, and so you had no testimony. In my particular case, you had witnesses or victims, if you will, that had the opportunity to change their stories, as was done in my case. So that's where some of that was a little bit different. But essentially, the only similarities is the fact that stand your ground was a commonality. Other than that, there were different circumstances and obviously different scenarios. I went into it, and I was always trained under Castle Doctrine. So when I did what I did, I had no idea about stand your ground. I did what I was taught, which was a duty to retreat before you use lethal force. I was inside my own home. I had a concealed weapons license permit, and I also had a restraining order at that time. From my experience on the inside, I can tell you this. A lot of times, the defendants do not get the opportunity in cases where it is truly self-defense to even utilize that, especially defendants that are black. That's what I have seen. In most cases, they automatically have the 1020 life placed on their folder. They have the enhancement. This legislation that was passed, which is oddly enough doesn't give judges the discretion, what it does give is the prosecutor's discretion. And I think that's backwards because it obviously is advantageous to the prosecutor to use it. So I believe to put a mutual party in that it does give them discretion to look at it and say, okay, I feel that this fits into a minimum mandatory situation as opposed to not, and they're supposed to be a mutual party. What it does is it gives the prosecution that advantage, and and that just, to me, doesn't work well for the defense in most cases. During the time of your house arrest, you had to pay for the cost of the monitoring. Also, you had a monthly drug test. But over the course of the two years, you paid around $10,000. Can you talk about the significance of this? I was fortunate that I had support and a means to be able to pay for my ankle monitor. You're talking about the cost of supervision. You're talking about the cost of monitoring. You're talking about drug tests that I only got one the entire time I was on it, but I pay for it every month. It was taxed. I had court costs, and essentially, I did not have an idea about how much I was supposed to pay towards the, towards the end. So I ended up having to come up with a couple thousand dollars in a short period of time. 
it's hard for defendants who come out to get a job if you're on regular probation with the fees where you don't have an ankle monitor and pay for that, let alone have the ankle monitor and have to pay for those, which are obviously a little bit higher, and then try to obtain employment and pay those fees. And a lot of the times they're not able to do that and it's subject to being violated on a technical violation because they can't make the fees. It's hard for the convicted felons to get jobs that will allow for them to pay for that actual ankle monitor. Well, Marissa Alexander, very quickly before we conclude, I mean, it's extraordinary what good use you made of your time under house arrest. I mean, first, you mentioned earlier that you completed or almost completed a book manuscript and then also the Marissa Alexander Justice Project that you began. Can you talk about both those projects? Okay, so the first year, I didn't want to lose sight of what I had experienced. So the lady who had written the book, she was an older lady, much wiser, and she kind of experienced some of the things that I did. So she came in, and it was very cathartic for me to just be able to kind of regurgitate all of the experiences that I had so that I would not lose them. So I did that for about six to eight months, and honestly, it was just emotionally taxing. And so I got that to a certain point. And then the next order of business, because I was doing paralegal school, I was bored out of my mind. And I felt like the best impact for me to do was to start my own nonprofit, not to trump what was going on, but to add to what's already existing. And so my nonprofit really focuses on the things that I feel like affected my case the most and just what affects our community as a whole. You're talking about domestic violence and intimate partner violence and the impact that it plays in just homes and social norms and what people experience. And then you're talking about criminal policy reform, those things, because my case did assist in changing some laws. The fact that I was given a minimum mandatory sentence, that alone has increased, like Michelle Alexander, mass incarceration. You're talking about juveniles. I mean, these kids are experiencing things that most of us have never had to experience. They don't have a, a chance from the start. So I just feel like my nonprofit really wanted to touch on all of these things. I've been in it from the trenches. Now I'm looking at it from a bird's eye view. And I just believe that we have an opportunity to do better. And we have services that are available, but it's not connected to the community. The community don't know about the services. So my question is, where's the disconnect? I have answers for that, but that's probably for another time. (laughs) That was Marissa Alexander, initially sentenced for 20 years in prison for firing a single warning shot against her abusive husband into the ceiling in 2010, interviewed on Democracy Now! Democracy Now! is heard five days a week on WART and anytime at all on democracynow.org. Under a recent royal decree, Saudi Arabia no longer requires women to have a man's consent to take part in certain activities. However, some activists believe the royal order does too little in a country with some of the most stringent restrictions on women. In Saudi Arabia's guardianship system, women must have permission from a male family member to study, travel, and more. Under the new decree, women no longer need consent from a guardian to travel or study unless there is a legal basis for this request under Islamic law. Activists believe that the decree does not go far enough and argue that guardianship must be abolished completely. For example, female prisoners must still be released to a male guardian. This results in some women staying in jail or a shelter even after their sentences are over, if no male accepts them. Women also still face hurdles in the private industry despite the royal decree. 
While the government can no longer require that women have a man's consent to work, private employers may require such consent before hiring women. Hospitals also may require a woman have male consent before agreeing to perform certain medical procedures. Last week, Saudi Arabia became one of 12 nations voted onto the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women. It will serve on the commission from 2018 through 2022. Many human rights activists have spoken out against the appointment. They argue that a nation that still bans female drivers and places many gender specific restrictions on women should not be a part of a commission designed to empower women's rights. UN Watch, a nonprofit watchdog organization, has led the way in protesting Saudi Arabia's appointment. Executive Director Hillel Newer has called the move morally reprehensible. He believes that the vote definitely has the power of sending a message. By putting an oppressor of Saudi women in a position of power and influence when it comes to women's rights. One good thing has come out of this, which is that Saudi Arabia was actually elected to the board. In the past, regional groups have nominated countries to the commission themselves. Voting nations have often simply rubber stamped these nominations without officially voting. This year, the United States challenged this process by demanding a formal tally. Women and girls are paying the heaviest price as Yemen's humanitarian crisis deepens, increasing their vulnerability to violation and abuse. That's the view of Anjali Sen, the UN Population Fund representative in the country, who was in Geneva ahead of a high level pledging conference on Tuesday to try and pull Yemen back from the brink of famine. The event was on behalf of the war stricken Arab state, where 19 million are in need of aid. And seven million face starvation. Sen told Maya Yacoub of the United Nations Radio's Gender Focus that the lives of around 52,000 pregnant Yemeni women were under immediate threat due to complications they face giving birth. We know that an estimated 18.8 million people, two thirds of the population, are in need of some kind of assistance or protection. And、uh, the humanitarian situation has really worsened over the last、uh, two years. And the coping mechanisms of Yemeni, especially for、uh, women and girls, are、uh, really stretched, and they are paying the heavi- heaviest、uh, price in this、uh, humanitarian crisis. There are an estimated 2.2 million women and girls of childbearing age in Yemen today. And you can imagine that due to the rising food shortages, these have also left an estimated 1.1 million pregnant women malnourished. And this is really going to threaten the lives of. Approximately、uh, 52,000 women who are likely to develop complications during childbirth because they're already debilitated and then they are facing food shortages, they are malnourished, and this is going to lead to real complications during childbirth. Besides、yes. the food shortages, tell us more about their needs. Yemen has had one of the highest rates of maternal mortality in the Arab region.、Mm. So, poor nutrition and the eroding health care. Which again means they are giving premature or low birth weight. And this is also the conflict is, has fur- further weakened the position of women and girls.、Uh, so, their protection, this has led to a near erosion of their protection me- mechanisms. And they have increased vulnerability to violence and abuse. 
So uh, what we are seeing is incidents of gender-based violence have reportedly increased by more than 63%, you can imagine, over mm. the last two years. Mm. And putting uh, 2.6 million women at risk of gender-based violence. So this, the question you asked really is very specific, that gender-based violence is increasing. We have seen that increase. And there are women. Uh, we have, uh, in 2016, we have reported 10,806 reported cases of gender-based violence. Mm. And we estimate that 52,000 women are at risk of sexual violence, including rape. This is the situation of women uh, mm -hmm. and girls in, in the country. All the protection me mechanisms uh, are weakening, and this is leading to the increased vulnerability to violence and abuse. Wonder Woman is once again embroiled in feminist controversy, this time for being the new face of Think Then Diet Food. Their latest marketing campaign promises customers a $5 discount on movie tickets if they buy $15 worth of Think Thin products. Critics of the promotional deal point out that the female superhero should be a role model of empowerment, not female physique. Advertising diet products with her image sends the wrong message to women and girls that strength comes from what you look like, not from what you are capable of. This is not the first time Wonder Woman's body is in the spotlight. Gal Gadot, the actress cast for the role was body shamed by the media for not having enough curves and breasts to represent the superhero. Even though she gained some weight by training and building muscle for the role, Godot made no apologies for his felt looks and delivered a performance that rivaled her male counterparts. You go, girl. Not caving to social expectations of what you should look like is exactly what is so wonderful about Wonder Woman. A 12-year-old social gathering held by Austria's Green Party is gaining more attention than expected with their theme this year. Organizers of the Women's Only Breakfast, which meets to discuss social and political issues, declared this year's focus would be any and all things dealing with the pelvic area. The announcement was met with some backlash when the public realized this included tutorials for women on how to urinate standing up in portable toilets one would typically see at large outdoor events. The participants of the Green Party's breakfast will be instructed on how to build simple devices to assist with standing urination, organizers said. While the event has increased the male participants, mostly for boosted security due to harassing emails, some people have come to defend the afternoon of information stating, quote, Only a man who has never been on a completely pee-covered women's toilet can see the necessity of such a lesson, end quote. In news out of Colorado this week, state Senate Republicans blocked the reappointment of Heidi Jeannie Hess to serve on the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Hess, a Democrat from the Grand Junction area, was first appointed to the commission as an at-large member in May 2013 for a term to expire in March 2017. The governor suggested Hess be reappointed to the commission to serve until 2021. Hess is the Western Slope field organizer for One Colorado, an organization that promotes and protects the rights of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people in the state. Her nomination is being blocked partly because of a misprint on the Civil Rights Commission's website, which listed Hess as a small business representative on the board, along with the web searches of her supporting a 2013 bill by opponents that opened up employees' abilities to sue their employers. Her appointment was voted down 18-17 to 17 in a party-line vote on Friday. A jury recently determined that the University of Iowa has discriminated against a former athletic administrator because of her gender and sexual orientation. Jane Meyer, 
who was formerly the highest-ranking woman in the Iowa Athletics Department, alleged that she was fired in retaliation for speaking out after Iowa fired her partner. She also alleged that she was paid less than a male counterpart for similar work. An eight-person jury ruled in Meyer's favor on all counts. In response, Meyer declared that this was for anyone who has fought against discrimination, believing this was bigger than herself. Since winning a unanimous jury verdict, she is hopeful that her career in athletics will continue. Prior to the verdict, she had been sure that her fight for justice had ended her career forever. Now, she says she is hopeful an institution will hire her and recognize that she, quote, stood up and wants to do the right thing, end quote. You march against climate change. You call yourself an environmentalist. But have you thought about a significant way most women contribute to pollution? Her turn reporter Arlene Zaucha met a young woman who's thinking about such things. It's almost taboo in a way. No one talks about it. That's Allison Christensen, a UW Oshkosh student, talking about menstruation. At last week's UW System-Wide Gender and Women's Studies Conference, she gave a poster presentation on the sustainability of menstrual products on college campuses. Why worry about things like tampons? Uh, average tampon comes with an applicator, and it also comes with a wrapper. And those are two items of waste that are just going to be thrown away. And in the end, tampons and applicators, for one person in their lifetime, it will produce over 400 pounds of waste. And young women like her don't want to put up with the uncomfortableness of pads either, she says. They're big and bulky, and in the end, you know, they just go right into the landfill and they don't disintegrate or biodegrade in a good amount of time. It's thousands and thousands of years. With concerns about the environment, there has been a resurgence of interest in washable, reusable napkins. Christensen says she's aware of this, but these just won't work for most college students. I have seen some of those, yeah, quote-unquote, the old-school kind of napkins. They are interesting, and they do work. They are nice and reusable. But when you are a college student on campus, you know, you don't have your own washing machine and you don't have your own sink. So putting that stuff into the wash really isn't as accessible and easy for a college student. At her presentation, Christensen had samples of a product she says is better than a tampon, the Diva Cup. It's made of silicone, non-toxic silicone with no extra chemicals. But the really nice thing about the Diva Cup is that you are not exposed to toxic shock syndrome at all. There is no research that has shown that people could get it because it doesn't have those excess chemicals that tampons do. And tampons, unfortunately, have a lot of chemicals inside them. Even chlorine. Chlorine is also inside the tampons. The Diva Cup looks like a funnel-shaped cap that can be bent and then fit into the vagina. It holds about a half ounce of menstrual flow, Christensen explains. There's two different sizes. One is for women who have had children, and then the other is for women who haven't. And they're actually very, very popular in third-world countries because you buy it and you can use it as many times as you need. And they usually last for a little over a year. That's when they quote-unquote, like, expire. But you don't have to keep on buying products. All you have to do is just take it out and you rinse it out in a bathroom or, you know, wherever you have access to, and then you can just easily put it right back in. Since the Diva Cup costs about $40 a year, Christensen is hoping that colleges can enter into contracts with the company to offer coupons or discounts on campuses. 
but it's just one example of a sustainable product for menstrual flow. Other companies make similar cups, and menstrual sponges could be another option for the environmentally aware menstruating woman. Christensen says she wants to break the taboo and get women thinking. I really hope to kind of get the word out and to, I mean, I already talked to multiple women here that work in different health fields and, you know, this kind of opened their eyes. They really had no idea. It's something that you just don't really think of. So now they're going to be trying to get more sustainable products in their health centers and in their universities. So I hope that this will start a little revolution and make some changes. And by the way, Although Christensen herself is unable to use the Diva Cup, she did do some experimentation. I had about five friends that I got together, and they all tested them. The majority of them liked them, but some of them did find it kind of far out. Allison Christensen is an undergrad at UW Oshkosh. She gave a presentation at the UW Gender and Women's Studies Conference called Sustainability of Menstrual Products on College Campuses. For her turn, I'm Arlene Zoucha. You might think this is ludicrous, but when the moon is full of film uterus, I know time's coming, coming soon. Some sisters get down on menstruation, but it ain't no time for sad desperation. Do they come when you got the blood again? Because you know your body isn't working all right. If you have self-help, you can watch all night. Sources used on today's program include Alaska Dispatch News, Vanity Fair, Democracy Now!, UN Radio's Gender Focus, Mother Jones, The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, New York Magazine, CommonDreams.org, Salon.com, TheMarySue.com, LGBTQ Nation, The Independent, Vice.com, The Hill, Human Rights Watch, Fortune, UPI, and The Denver Post. Today's excellent edition of Her Turn was produced by Joanne Powers, who was also our on-air engineer. Other contributors include Franny Lyons, Samantha Burble, Sadie Minobi, and Arlene Zaucha. Now stay tuned for two and a half hours of women in music on Her Invented Variety with host Sam Burble. For Her Turn, I'm Sadie Minobi. And I'm Franny Lyons. Have a grateful day. <laughs>